Okay, so Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25, reading through verse um, 32. Give your attention as I read God's word. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. There you have it. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Uh, just a little bit of a recap as we uh, continue our study through the book of Ephesians. We're working through that practical section now, starting in chapter 4. When I say practical, I don't mean to say that chapters 1 through 3 are not practical. They are practical. Uh, but this is more of the so what part. Okay, So Paul, uh, in the first three chapters, gives us the what. And now in the second three chapters, he gives us the so what. Um, what are we to know? Chapters 1 through 3. How are we to behave? So now what? What do we do with what we know? Chapters 4 through 6. So it's all practical. Uh, but here we are getting now to the nuts and bolts of the worthy walk, right? It all begins in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul begins that chapter, that verse. He says, I urge you, I encourage you, I exhort you, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling by which you were called or worthy of the calling with which you were called. Uh, so he is urging us to walk in a manner that is fitting, in a manner that is suitable for those who have been called out of this world, right? We are, as we saw last week, we are now new men. We are new men and women, but the idea of men there is being used generally, generically. We are new men in Christ. We put off the old, we put on the new. What does that look like? Well, we're going to see uh, more specifically in these verses this morning. But a worthy walk is not only one that is, as we saw earlier in chapter 4, one that is uh, humble, one that seeks the welfare of others, one that is united, uh, but also one that puts off the old way of behaving and puts on the new way of behaving. So we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling. We are to walk in a way that is suitable for who we are in Christ. We are to walk according to the new man. The new man is part of the new creation. If you think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ and it, you know, the new King James supplies, he is. It just literally says, if anyone in Christ, new creation. That's the literal Greek. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. We are part of the new creation. You're like, well, it doesn't look like a new creation yet. Well, that's coming, 
right? That's why this overlap of already not yet, the new creation is breaking in to the world now in the church, in believers, as we are made new, as we are regenerated, as we are reborn, as we are being sanctified. That new creation is breaking forth, and now Christians are to walk in a way that is consistent with the new creation. That's why we put off the old. It's not just, as I said last week, it's not just behavior modification. It's not like, okay, I'm going to start acting like a good boy and girl now. No, it's that, but it's, it's putting off things that are consistent with this world that is passing away and putting on things that are consistent with the new age, the new world that is breaking in now in the church through the new creation. So we are to put off the old. Everything that is associated with the old, including sinful behaviors, including sinful desires, including um, a mindset that is focused on this world. Even things that are not necessarily evil, but are just uh, associated with this world, we are to sort of uh, have in mind this, this way of kind of, we are no longer part of that anymore. We are part of a new creation. Yes, we live in this world, but we are not of this world. So what you see here in verses 25 to 32, really, it's kind of like case law. Okay, well, what do you mean by case law? Well, if you think about how Moses, when he brings the uh, people of Israel uh, out of Egypt, and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they receive the Ten Commandments, and then you've got uh, a bunch of chapters after that before the covenant is ratified uh, in the midst of the people, you have a lot of what is called case law. It's like, well, how do you apply the Ten Commandments in daily life? Well, you have like, well, if your ox gores another person, that ox has to be slain. If you, are, if you, were, if you knew your ox was one that wandered around and you didn't put a fence around it, well, then you are responsible. It's just kind of case law. It's like, how do you apply the Ten Commandments to the community of Israel? Well, here are some examples Here's some case law. Uh, and, and in a sense, what you have here in a sense is New Testament case law. Well, what does the worthy walk look like? What does putting on the new man look like? Well, it looks like verses 25 to 32, right? Don't lie. <laughs> Tell the truth. Don't uh, use your mouth to speak corrupting things. Speak things that build up. Uh, don't steal. Work hard. I mean, I don't really need to... to belabor these points. I'm going to belabor them, but <laughs> I don't need to belabor them because they, they seem self-explanatory, right? Uh, really what you see here is Paul kind of looking at applications of the Ten Commandments, at least the, the second table of the Ten Commandments. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. So that's what we see here. These are examples of putting off, right? So what is, what is the old man? Well, the old man was one that lied. The old man was one that got angry uh, sinfully. The old man was one who would steal. The old man was one who would let corrupting words come out of his or her mouth and grieves the Holy Spirit and has bitterness and anger and clamor and all these things. Put that off. Put on the new man. Replace lying with speaking the truth. Replace being angry with a righteous anger. Replace stealing with hard work. Um, Again, uh, probably things I don't need to belabor too much uh, in, this, in this setting here with you people, but again, this is sort of like a, a self-explanatory in a way, but it, it's also helpful just to have this reminder because um, as, as the Bible so often uh, 
puts it, you know, be careful, right? Take heed lest you fall, right? You know, we have to be aware of our own weaknesses, right? Uh, our own sin. We may think, well, you know, I do work hard. Well, you know, there's always someone that works harder than you. I, I do tell the truth. Well, there's always someone who's more honest than you, right? So uh, this is not a way, to, is the, the point of all this is not to give you a checklist of, okay, here's now a list of to-dos. What I wanted to hopefully get out of this is to show you what the new man looks like and how we need to look to Christ to put on that new man more and more, to, to seek, to strive, to put on that new man more and more. So the worthy walk, if you want a theme for this morning, the worthy walk is one in which we reflect the qualities of the new man. And that's how I uh, see this passage breaking out. So. Uh, we're back to three points. So the, the, I feel comfortable, you know, three points. That just, that feels sanctified. That feels, you know, Trinitarian, right? You've got three persons in the Trinity. You should have three points in every lesson and message. It just feels, it feels normal to have three points. So you're going to have four points later tonight if you come back tonight. But uh, three points in the morning. So you're going to see qualities of action, qualities of attitude, and qualities of affection. I even alliterated them for you with A's. <laughs> uh, qualities of action, qualities of attitude, qualities of affection. So let's first look, verses 20. This is going to be the longest part, but it's also kind of the most obvious one. I mean, again, like I said, it, it, you read these verses, they seem self Okay, don't lie. Got it. Check, right? <laughs> Tell the truth. Yes, got it. All right. Don't 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 be angry and do not sin. But we're gonna we're gonna go through this a little bit. Um, uh, hopefully not in too much depth to the point where we beat the dead horse. But uh, qualities of action in verses twenty five through twenty nine. Um, the therefore, um, of course, in verse twenty five points us back to uh, verses seventeen through twenty four. It connects us back to that. So what does the new man look like? Well, the new man's going to look like this. He's gonna, Paul's going to give you some concrete examples of what the new man looks like, what this putting off and putting on looks like. And the new man here is, as we said, to exhibit qualities of action, attitude, and affection. So the first one are the actions. And this is not just things we do, it's things we say. So you got things, words and deeds, really, in verses 25 through 29. So, but more importantly, it's not just Paul's giving you a list of things here, is these things are very specific, because how are we to guide the worthy walk of the new man? How, what is, what is the, the, the standard for Christian living. Well, it's according to the law of God, right? Um, if you want, you can turn to Psalm 119. And if you know your Psalms, you know that this is uh, 176 verses extolling and expounding the, the glory of the Word of God. And I'm just going to touch on a few verses here. These are ones that you've probably heard Num numerous times. Psalm 119, look at verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. 
How can a young person replace man with person? How can a young man, how can a young woman keep his way? How can we cleanse his or her way? What is the path to walk? It is to walk according to your word. Drop down two more verses. Verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So how are you going to keep your way? Will you keep the word of God, the, the law of God, the word of God in your heart so that you will not sin against you? It's kind of what you see in Proverbs 4, I think it's 23, 24. You know, uh, guard your heart, right? Because from it flow, uh, you know, the wellsprings of life flow from your heart. Look at verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Give me open eyes so I could see your law is not, is not something that is burdensome, but it is something that shows me the way to go. It shows me the path I need to take. Verse 34. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Again, the call of the psalmist to, to the Lord. Give me understanding. Help me to know your word. Help me to understand your law. Then I will keep it. Notice the order too, right? Give me understanding, then I, that I may keep your law. Right? You know, give me new birth, right? If you want to put it in New Testament terms, give me new birth, give me regeneration, give me eyes to see, and I will follow your way. Give me a new heart, and then I will desire to do your will. Verse 97. Now we're flipping ahead a little bit. This is a good one, right? Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Why do I love your law? Because I, it guides me. It gives me the guardrails, right? You know, I, I use this example a couple of times, right? But if you go bowling, right? And if you've got kids that go bowling, what do you do? You ask them to put the guardrails up so the balls don't go in the gutter, right? That's kind of the law. That's what the law is. The law is guardrails. It keeps your ball on the alley so it doesn't go into the gutter. If you go in the gutter, you're in trouble. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And then, arguably one of the most famous verses from this chapter. You, you might have it. It might be a verse that is like on the front of your Bible, on the presentation page. If you open your Bible uh, on the presentation page, you may have Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is a guide, it is a light, it is a lamp, it shows me the way, so I do not stray from it. And that's what Paul's going to do here um, by giving us these ex exhortations, these imperatives in verses 25 through 32. He's just expounding the law. And he's showing how the law is the, the light on your way, the lamp for your feet. This is what we call the third use of the law. You may have heard me use this before, right? There are three uses of the law. The first one is the... And I, I have little um, sort of um, mnemonic words that help me understand this. There's the mirror, the curb, and the guide. Okay, so the mirror, the first use of the law is the one that shows you your sin. It is the one that breaks you before your own self-righteousness. It is the one that shows you you cannot keep the law of God perfectly and you need a righteousness that comes from outside of you, one that Christ has done. That's the mirror. The, the, the law breaks you. 
The law is a curb. This is second use. We don't often talk about this, but it's sort of the civil use of the law, how the law curbs sin, how the law is meant to, to govern a society so that it, uh, it, it acts in some way, shape, or form just. Uh, it is the way to guide governments to uh, use the sword and to uh, encourage justice in the land. Of course, you know, we've long since jettisoned uh, the use of the law in our, <laughs> of the God's law in our, in our land. But, and then the guide. So mirror, curb, guide. The third use, the guide. How is a Christian to live? This is the guide. The third use of the law. Uh, Heidelberg Catechism talks about this in Lord's Day 33. Uh, Lord's Day 33, um, which comes, you know, 86 tells us, it, it starts the, the exposition of the Ten Commandments. But Lord's Day 33 talks about the new man and the old, the old man and the new man. Um, in Lord's Day 33, question 88, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? And the Catechism says two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. So conversion, repent. Now, we think of conversion as something that happens immediately, instantaneously, and poof, you're, you're reborn, and that's true. But before, you know, there, there was an older understanding of conversion or repentance that is something that is... Uh, occurs through the entire Christian life. This regeneration, you're being reborn, you're being made new, you're, uh, that old self is more and more being put away and the rising of the new uh, is happening more and more. And it, and it quotes uh, Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. And then it says, What is the dying way of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. So this dying of the old self is, is uh, you, you, are, you grow in your aversion towards sin, you, you grow in your sorrow for sin, and you, and you desire more and more to do away with it, you hate it more and more. The rising of the, uh, of the new life, uh, rising to life of the new self, verse, uh, question 90. Wholehearted joy in God through Christ, and a love and delight to live according to the will of God. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, right? Psalm 119, verse 97. In doing every kind of good work. What are good works? Question 91. Only those which are done out of true faith conform to God's law and are done for his glory and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. So the good works are those that are done according to the law, done by, you know, done in true faith done with a, uh, a goal to glorify God in what we do, say, and think. So that's this idea then of putting off the old, putting on the new, and Paul now is going to deal essentially here with commandments 6, 8, and 9. Uh, commandment 7 comes later in chapter 5, uh, but this, the sixth commandment, of course, is thou shalt not murder, and we know from uh, Jesus that uh, murder begins with anger in the heart. Uh, commandment eight is to not steal, right? He's going to deal with that here. Uh, the ninth commandment is to, bear, uh, to, to not bear false witness. We're going to see that dealt with here. So he's essentially just kind of arguing through a sample of the Ten Commandments and saying how you apply God's law to putting off what it tells you not to do and putting on what it tells you to do. As we've gone through the commandments in the catechism every year, we always 
mention that even though you might have a commandment that says, thou shalt not, there's always implied a thou shalt. And if there's a thou shalt, there's always implied a thou shalt not, right? So there's always a positive side to the commandment and a negative side to the commandment. And the, you know, the catechism is very good at drawing this out. Uh, so we're going to see that here in this section. And Paul here begins with the first quality of the new man by putting away lying. Uh, if you have an ESV, it might say having put away falsehood. Uh, the New American Standard says laying aside falsehood. Uh, the word there is pseudos. You know, you get pseudo, uh, false. Uh, put away lying. Put away falsehood. Um, again, this is something, you know, uh, well, what does that mean? Well, it means put away lying. It means put away. It means put away falsehood. Uh, don't lie. You know, I mean, tell the truth. That's what he says here. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That's a that's a, a quote from Zechariah eight sixteen. Why? For we are members of one another. Again, he's talking about behavior within the body of Christ. Of course, um, he says this earlier, chapter four, verse fifteen. Speaking the truth in love that the body may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. We do this through speaking the truth in love. Right? Don't forget the in love part. <laughs> you know, there's, there are truth speakers who just like to hammer you with, well, I'm just speaking truth. Well, okay. What about the in love part? <laughs> How are you doing with that? Are you just bashing somebody over the head with truth? I'm a truth teller. Well, okay, yeah, but you know, it, sometimes you need to coat that with you know uh, the attitude of of love are you doing are you speaking the truth to build up your neighbor are you speaking the truth to build up your brother are you speaking the truth as we'll see in verse 29 right speak words that are good for edification for building up we'll get to that in a moment so we are to speak the truth with our neighbors put off falsehood put on truth next in verses 26 and 27 paul talks about anger um, you can say this is an application of the sixth commandment. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. All right, how many people here have been angry in their life? <laughs> how many people here are able to do that without sinning? <laughs> All right, it's hard, right? It's difficult. I've got the angry part down pat. I could do that. I could be angry. The, my, my problem is doing so without sinning. Okay, be angry, but do not sin. Now, this is not a command to be angry. Okay, Paul's not saying, all right, now, all of you, be angry. No, he's saying, if you're going to be angry, be angry for the right reasons. Do not sin with your anger. Our anger is often... 99.9999% of the time because of something that we feel slighted, okay? Something that is not going our way. Something that we don't like, right? Was Jesus ever angry? Yeah, you betcha, right? What did Jesus do when he saw the sellers in the temple, when he goes uh, to the temple and, uh, uh, during Passion Week? Was he like, oh, how nice that they're gouging the people of God by selling the necessary sacrificial... No, he goes in there, he flips the tables over, builds a cord of whips, and drives the money changers out of the temple. Was he angry? 
you bet. Right? When you see that story in John chapter 2, John, the, the gospel writer, says that's what he meant when the psalmist said, you know, zeal for your house has consumed you. Right? Yes, we should have, there is a place for righteous anger. Should we be angry at the millions and millions of babies that have been aborted in this country for over the course of 50 some odd years? Yes, we should be angry at that. Now, should we sin in that? No. Right? A righteous anger. Righteous anger is angry at injustice, at unrighteousness in the world. But that anger needs to be directed in the right way, right? Um, Jesus, you know, the Psalms talk about how the God is angry with the sinners and the sinful every day. The problem is we don't know who those are, right? We, we don't have omniscience, so we can say, I know you're an unrighteous, wicked person, I'm going to be angry with you. You know, which is why oftentimes you say, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. Well, we need that because we often throw our anger at the person and not at the sin so much. Uh, yes, there's a place for anger, but do not sin in doing so. We're not... Our anger is often not motivated by a zealousness for God's glory. Our anger is often motivated by a zealousness for our own glory, for our own uh, pride, if you will. Um, but again, there is a, a place for righteous anger. But as I said, our, our anger often falls short. That's why there are so many warnings in the Bible against anger. Um, I, I had an anger issue, right? Would you say I had an anger issue, huh? <laughs> My wife is shaking her head. She's nodding her head. I should say not shake. Shaking is this way. Nodding is going this way. So I, I had, uh, at one time I walked through the Proverbs and I circled all the verse, I, not in this Bible, but in my other one that I have at home. I circled the ones that really spoke to me about anger. And in Proverbs 14, 29, uh, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. When I was reading through the Proverbs and I was trying to deal with my anger, when I saw that one, that one hit me like a plank on the side of the head, right? Slow to anger, slow to wrath. What is God like? Is he slow to anger? Yeah, the Bible says that numerous, numerous times. Slow to anger. If you, have, if you are slow to wrath, you have great understanding. But if you are impulsive or short of spirit, it says here, you exalt folly. The one who flies off the handle just ex exalts folly. It elevates folly in this world. That's what I felt like a lot of times. Um, another good proverb, 16.32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. Again, this idea of self-control. right? Anger is just a lack of self-control. So that was Proverbs 16.32. Um, this one was one of my favorite ones. Proverbs 25, verse 28. He who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. What's a city without walls? How hard is it to take a city without walls? 
What did, what did God have to do to the city of Jericho before the Israelites could sweep in and conquer it? He had to knock down the walls because the walls were high and they were very fortified. But then uh, God blew out the walls and then the Israelites were able to just easily walk in and take over the city. Right? If you are angry, if you have no rule over your own spirit, you are just like a city without walls. You are manipulative. You, you can be manipulated. You can be easily uh, swayed into different directions. Like I said, those are just some of the ones that came to mind when I was <laughs> trying to deal with anger issues. And then, of course, you know what, what does Jesus say in Matthew 5.22? You don't need to turn there because that's the one that talks about if you have anger in your heart, you are violating the sixth commandment. You, you may as well have committed murder because the anger in the heart is what produces the sin of murder. So then he goes on and says, anger is not to be carried over into the next day. In other words, deal with the issue. Right? Don't go to sleep angry. Again, from the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you realize you have someone against your brother and you're going to the temple to worship, what, do you sh- what should you do? Drop your sacrifice, run to your brother, make amends, because you can't go and worship God if you have anger in your heart against your brother. Okay, let's move on. The third quality of action for the new man is to put off stealing and put on hard work. Verse 28, let him who stole, steal no longer. I remember somebody joking about this. It says, if you move the comma, it makes this verse very different. If you put the comma after stole, let him who stole, steal. (laughs) No longer working with his hands. No. Uh, Let him who stole, steal no longer, but let him labor, working with his hands, what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Now, this is more than just, you you know, theft, like you go in and you steal something and you take it, right? I mean, that's the obvious one, but there are so many other ways you can steal, right? You know, you can steal if you have, you know, what the Bible would call, you know, dishonest scales. You know, what's a dishonest scale? Well, if you're kind of, you know, overcharging for things, if you're cheating on the bill, if you're kind of padding expenses, that's stealing, right? If you are a nine to five worker and you come in at 9.15 and you leave at 4.30, you're stealing time from your from your employer, right? Uh, all these things are, you know, that's the idea of theft. What do you you put that off? What do you put on? You put on hard work, labor. Why? So that if there's someone in need, you can give to that one who has in need. And then in verse 29, Paul again turns back to our speech, but not so much lying, but just the overall quality of our words. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Years ago, I don't know if they're still together. Years ago, there was a Christian band called Building 429. Anybody heard of Building 429? I was like, what an interesting name for a band. And I thought about it. It's like, oh, yeah, they took this from Ephesians 429 because the word there, edification, building up. So the idea there is they wanted to edify with their music, supposedly. At least that's the idea I got. But let no corrupt word come from your mouth. That word corrupt means rotten. But edifying means it's our word oikodome, to build up. Let no corrupting speech... Again, this is another one that's kind of obvious and self-explanatory, but, you know... 
I'm old enough to remember, right? You watched network television back in the day, and if they said the word hell or damn, you never heard those words back in the day, right? Uh, then all of a sudden those words started to creep into to, uh, everyday television, and then eventually you know, other words started to creep into television, and, and now it's like, you know, you might as well put a warning message on every network television show because some corrupting word is gonna come out of the mouth of somebody. Um, let no corrupting word come from your mouth. Look at chapter 5, verses uh, 3 and 4. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Yeah. I mean, this is convicting for myself, um, as it should be for all of us. You know, we, we all fall prey to corrupting speech from time to time. Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 36 says, we are going to give an account for every idle word we speak. Every idle word we speak. Now, again, much of this seems obvious, and I probably do not need to belabor it any more than I already have, but Paul is making a big deal of this, so it needs to be said. Our actions in word or deed need to reflect the new creation, needs to reflect the new man. We are living out of the new creation. We are already new creatures. We're living out that. We're living in a life that is consistent with that now. And now as I look at the time, I need to kind of move on. Secondly, qualities of attitude. So we saw qualities of action which involve our speech and our deeds. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't be angry. Or if you're angry, at least don't sin. Uh, speak what is, builds one another up. Speak what is good to the hearer. Speak what uplifts people. And then now we're looking at qualities of attitude. There's only one here, really. It's verse, one verse. And that is an attitude that seeks to not grieve the Holy Spirit. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. That word there, grieve, lupeo, means to make sorrowful, to, to, to bring to sorrow. Do not make the Holy Spirit grieve. I think of... You know, if you think of what happened right before the judgment of the flood, what happened, uh, what did God see when he looked at the world below him? Right, he saw all the sin, and it grieved him, right, to the point where he said, I regret that I have made man. <laughs> I have regret that I, that I have let this go on for so long. It grieved him to his heart. Now, just a side note, the fact that you can grieve the Holy Spirit what does that indicate? It indicates that the Holy Spirit is a person, right? You can only grieve people. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not the force. The Holy Spirit is not impersonal. The Holy Spirit is a person because only persons can be grieved. But what does it mean then to grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, I think first we need to ask, what does the Holy Spirit do within us so that we might grieve him? So now I'm going to look at Belgic Confession. We're getting all the confessions today. 
Belgian Confession, Article 24, talks about the sanctification of sinners. And in Belgian Confession, Article 24, I'm just going to read the first paragraph that I have here. Um, We believe that this true faith produced in man by the hearing of God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit. So just pause there for a moment. That's how faith is work, right? That's what Paul says in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So true faith is produced in man by hearing God's word and by the work of the Spirit. So uh, this true faith produced in man by hearing of God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit regenerates him, brings new birth, gives him new life, and makes him a new man, causing him to live the new life and freeing him from the slavery of sin. Okay, that's the work that the Holy Spirit does in us. So if we grieve the Holy Spirit, we are working contrary to that, right? We are not living the new life. We are going back to our slavery to sin. That's the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit. It is, it is essentially doing, working at odds against what the Holy Spirit is working in us. So the Holy Spirit sanctifies us by working through the Word and empowering us for holy living. Then we grieve Him when we work against that. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says here, Do not quench the Spirit. Very simple verse. Do not quench the Spirit. Right? The, think of the Spirit, right? Oftentimes images of the Spirit, one image you see is a fire, right? So you quench it by dousing what the Spirit is doing inside of you. So when we give in to the flesh, when we indulge the flesh, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And it is possible for a Christian to so grieve and quench the Holy Spirit that he or she will backslide. That's Now, never to the point, if this is a true Christian, never to the point of losing salvation, but I found this helpful. As I said, you're getting all the, all the confessions today. Cans of Dort. Um, Cans of Dort. Uh, fifth head of doctrine, which is the perseverance of the saints. And Article 4. The Cans of Dort, again, if you remember, I don't know if I ever told you this, but <laughs> maybe you've heard this before. The Cans of Dort were a response to the Arminian uh, believers in the Dutch Reformed Church. So they had five points of disputation against uh, the churches in the Netherlands, and the churches in the Netherlands held a conference, a synod, and they renounced the Arminian teaching, and then they put forth and reconfirmed uh, the confessional teaching. So in the fifth point of doctrine, which talks about the perseverance of the saints, Article 4, talks about the danger of true believers falling into serious sin. Although that power of God strengthening preserving true believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh, yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions they cannot, by their own fault, depart from the leading of grace and be led astray by the desires of the flesh and give in to them. For this reason, they must constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptations. When they fail to do this, not only can they be carried away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones, but also by God's just permission, they are sometimes so carried away 
witness the sad cases described in Scripture of David, Peter, and other saints falling into sins. All right. Translation. Christians can fall into serious sins. Right? David. I've mentioned this example many, many times before. David is a prime example of that. A man after God's own heart who sinned grievously to the point where he uh, committed great sin and the Lord had to rebuke him. Peter, right? Peter denies the Lord. Um, so yeah, you can fall into serious sin and be a Christian if you continue to grieve the Holy Spirit, if you continue to work against what he is working in you. What Paul is saying here is that the new man is one who has an attitude, or in his attitude, seeks to obey the promptings of the Spirit and not work against him by indulging the flesh. So this is a quality of attitude. You want to be attuned to God. You want to be a Godward focused, not focusing on your flesh. And then he reminds the readers here, you were sealed, right? That points us back to chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He has put his mark upon you. He has, he has claimed you as his own. So do not turn away from that. Do not walk away from that. The new man is to have a Godward attitude as one who has been chosen by the Father, redeemed by his Son, sealed by his Spirit. Our heart and mind ought to be looking toward God, not toward the world, not toward the flesh, not toward the devil. Another way to say this is, how hard is it to not sin if you are thinking about not sinning? That makes sense? Does that question make sense? How hard is it to not sin if you're thinking about not sinning? I think it's hard, right? Because you, you're, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this thing. I'm not, you know, think of, here's a trivial example, okay? You're on a diet, and you're like, I'm not going to eat that cookie, right? And then you're thinking about the cookie. That's all you're thinking about is the cookie. I'm not going to eat that cookie. And what happens? You eat the cookie, right? As opposed to, what if you just turned your mind somewhere away from the cookie, <laughs> right? How about focusing on what's good, right? Put on the new man. Put off the old man. Okay. More rapidly now. Qualities of affection, verses 31, 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The final set of qualities here Paul addresses are qualities of affection. The new man here is characterized as one who is kind, one who is tenderhearted, one who is forgiving, as opposed to one who is bitter, angry, clamorous, or uh, loud quarreling. Ah, you know, cantankerous people. Uh, uh, evil speaking. Let that be put away with all malice. Rather, be kind. Be tenderhearted. Be forgiving. The old man would be bitter, wrathful, angry, crude-talking, and malicious. This is the way of the world, the path that we all once walked in the deadness of our sins, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. That's how we once were. right? Maybe not everyone to the same degree, but everyone at one point in our lives has been this way. Put that off. Put that off, he says. The new man is to behave toward one another as God behaved toward us. Right? God forgives us, thus we are to be forgiven. God is gracious to us, thus we are to be gracious. God is kind toward us, thus we are to be kind. 
you know, again, the perfect example of this is Matthew 18. I'm not going to read it, but Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. You know this one, right? Where a servant who has this great debt before his master is called to pay the debt. He can't pay the debt. It's unpayable. It, it would require, you know, a hundred lifetimes to pay this off. And he begs the master, and the master forgives him. And then he turns around and he finds a fellow servant of his who owes him about three months' pay. And then he beats the servant and puts him, has him put into debtor's prison. And then the, servant, the, you know, the servants of the master see that and they report this. And, and he says, you cruel and wicked servant, I forgave you all this debt. Why couldn't you not turn and forgive the one who had a much smaller debt? The one who recognizes just how much they are forgiven will be motivated to extend that forgiveness toward others. If you recognize just how much your sin is an offense to a holy God, you just consider that for just a brief moment, how much your sin is an offense to a holy God, then would you not then be motivated to show forgiveness toward others? Because God has forgiven you the greater sin, right? Any sin against God is greater than any sin we will commit against ourselves. And then, you know, I could go on, but really all this... This is all going to boil down to what we're going to see, Lord willing, next week if you just look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. As if that's an easy thing to do. <laughs> but, but that's the point. We are, this, what, all of this is what he, Paul is saying here is show forth Christ-like behavior. Show forth the behaviors of the new man. And again here, Paul fleshes out what the worthy walk of the new man looks like. It is not an exhaustive list, but it gives us a view of the qualities of the new man. These are qualities of the new man. If you want to walk worthy, put off these things. Lying, anger, uh, stealing, corrupt speaking, grieving the Holy Spirit, bitterness and wrath. Put on instead hard work, truthful speaking, edifying speech. Uh, a, a Godward focus and kindness and forgiveness towards one another. As I said, obviously this is easier said than done. And I don't for a moment think we can do this without the Holy Spirit working in us. Because our battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil is real. We'll see that as we get to the end of uh, the book of Ephesians, Lord willing. But again, the law of God for the Christian is not... Is, Sometimes it does have that first use, that mirror fo uh, function in which it shows us our sin if we've been backslidden. But for the most part, the mirror, uh, the law of God is not that mirror anymore. It is that guide. The law of God for the Christian becomes that guide that shows us how to walk the worthy walk. And then our response to that. This is all of a response to what God has done, right? Again, remember, remember how Paul folk, uh, uh, structures Ephesians, right? First, he mentions how we are blessed in the heavenly places. We are chosen. We are redeemed. We are sealed. We have been made alive. We're seated together with him in the heavenly places. Paul focuses on that. And he says, now live according to that life. Live according to your position in Christ. Let that old way be continually put off and start to reflect these new qualities in your life. And then we always look to Christ. That's the point. Because Christ is the one who did walk the worthy walk. Christ is the only one who walked the worthy walk. And he did so in our place. His righteousness is ours. He sent the Holy Spirit then to be our helper, to lead, empower, and guide us in a life of imitation. 
And again, we do this because we're sealed, because we're redeemed, because we have been chosen. We do this because we love Christ. And we do this because we desire to glorify God in our bodies. All right, I am at time. I am already way at time. So I'll stop here. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So let me pray real quickly, and we'll get ready to worship. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, um, you've shown us here uh, the qualities of the new man. And Lord, uh, the goal here is not to focus on so much how we need to be, but to focus on who we are in you, and then to let our lives then so reflect that. So Lord, I pray that for each one here, whatever sins we struggle with, whatever things we uh, weigh us down, may we strive, Lord, to put that off and to put on the new man who is being renewed after the image of Christ and continue to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have received, doing so as a response to the fact, Lord, that we have been chosen, redeemed, and sealed in Christ. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.